Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. To Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives us orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. The word of the Lord. So today, I get to step out from behind the lovely plastic screens and bring the word of God in a different way, Uh, without a a melody this morning, but am I going to have to take the earring off, Clark? Okay, guys. It was, <laughs> we don't need these. Laura and Troy uh, have covered that part well. That was great to worship together this morning. We are just near the beginning of our journey through Mark, still in the first chapter. And a lot has happened so far. Jesus has arrived on the scene after John the Baptist has prepared the way for him. He has been baptized, anointed by the Spirit tempted, and he has started preaching about the kingdom of God. And he's been convincing enough to win the hearts of some disciples and followers, and we see a momentum building, which the gospel writer Mark is very good at as he tells us the story of Jesus. Hello. (laughs) Yep. All right. Mark uh, makes us hold our breath a little bit, which I suspect is a little how Jesus' followers felt, wondering what he was going to do next. So after Simon and Andrew and James and John drop everything, that was last week, we come to verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. If I told you that when I was potty training my two-year-old, he had an accident in a vehicle, you might be like, okay, so what? That happens, Shalina. Um, If, however, I told you that when I was potty training my two-year-old while living in Beijing, unable to speak Mandarin, and he had an accident in a taxi, I do believe that you might want to know the rest of the story. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story, uh, but you might want to know it. Just like every good story, the narrative has a context that we need to hold in our minds as we process the events. 
So Capernaum was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was soon after the death of Herod the Great. That's the Herod who tried to kill Jesus as a child. And his kingdom had been divided into four to be ruled by his sons, inconveniently also named Herods, so it gets very confusing. <laughs> but Capernaum stood on the border of two of these Roman territories, so there was a detachment of Roman soldiers stationed there, kind of like a customs border crossing of sorts. And naturally, it was a place of trade and industry, but also one of fishing and agriculture, which is why we find our fishermen uh, disciple friends, making it their home base. And we find ourselves there in this passage at the synagogue on Sabbath. And we have to stop and remind ourselves of the significance of Sabbath at that time because the fact that Jesus is about to perform his very first two miracles on Sabbath is no small thing. To the Jewish people, Sabbath was a symbol of eschatological, big word, rest or shalom that God would one day provide whenever the Messiah came. This is what they were waiting for. Eschatology simply means a theology of last things, especially around ideas of resurrection, hell, the last judgment, and eternal life. And for the Jews, every belief that they had about last things was wrapped up in the idea of a Messiah coming and making everything right. They had been anticipating it for centuries. And the anticipation was built into their culture from the days of the patriarchs. It was in their life rhythms and their celebrations. Sabbath defined them as God's people. They longed for Sabbath. To them, it was the coming kingdom of God. So Jesus comes onto the scene, a Jewish man, proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come near, and he is not discreet about it. He starts openly breaking the rules that have been put in place by the religious leaders to protect the Sabbath. And he chooses to begin his ministry of healing and deliverance on the Sabbath. If we hop over to the Gospel of Luke for a moment, we see Jesus being explicit. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He actually stops quoting Isaiah. This is him quoting the prophet Isaiah. He stops quoting mid-phrase from a passage that the Jewish people would have known very well. The year of the Lord's favor was known to them as the year of Jubilee, the final Sabbath, the last thing, when all would be made well and right, when God graciously pardons all debts and sets the captives and the oppressed free. And Jesus is saying he's here to proclaim it, to usher it in. There's an undeniable subplot happening in the ministry of Jesus all throughout the book of Mark. And this is just the beginning of it. So we place this story uh, in sequence with the passages we've been investigating over these past few weeks. And when we do, we find that it's Jesus' credibility at stake. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Up until this point, unless you were at the Jordan and had heard the voice of God yourself watch the dove land on his shoulder, all you were getting were secondhand reports of a compelling teacher. That might be enough to draw a crowd, maybe a quirky fandom of sorts, 
but that was certainly not enough for people to know that the Messiah had arrived. So here in Capernaum, on Sabbath, Jesus begins to teach. Verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. This is the very first time that Mark uses the word authority, and so we want to take note of it. The teachers the crowds were used to, the priests and the scribes, they were used to them leveraging the authority of others, name-dropping, if you will. As Moses said, Rabbi so-and-so taught, or as I've heard my kids declare, but my teacher said, that was one thing, but it's gotten worse when, but the YouTuber said, it's hard to swallow. <laughs> Jesus, however, comes onto the scene dropping no names. He starts preaching like he knows what he's talking about. And then we see two things happen. First, we see Jesus demonstrate his authority over the spiritual realm. And second, we see the kingdom come over the physical realm. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Possessed by an impure spirit. Mark doesn't go easy on us out of the gate nor did Matt and Kimberly when they go easy on me when they gave me this, the first exorcism to preach on. <laughs> Mark has a pattern of distinguishing between those who are sick and those who are demon-possessed. Possessed might even be an overstatement of the translation, which more fully means has a demon. And so we should be careful not to distort or overemphasize the authority Satan has over a human. He has very little power outside what has been granted to him by those who obey him through their own sin, rebellion, agreements with lies, or those whose ancestors have made agreements with him. But Satan does not play fair. Even if it is a sin in response to a hurt, or a wound inflicted, or a trauma experienced, sin from immaturity or ignorance, he will grasp for whatever power he can get. So anyways, Mark distinguishes, and we want to distinguish here as well, not all who are sick have a demon. Mental illness, cancer. Listen, we live in a broken world and our bodies suffer. Not everything has spiritual roots. However, certainly all who have a demon need to be set free of it. The demon here actually speaks seemingly on behalf of a group of demon of demons and he says I know who you are the holy one of God and there's an irony here the unclean impure spirit calls out the holiness or the cleanness and the purity of Jesus irony maybe but no surprise the book of James says you believe that there is one God good even the demons believe that and they shudder the demons were scared though Many commentators brought up that throughout the Old Testament, naming one's opponent is, is a way of trying to assert power over them. Kind of like when I use the middle name of my kids when I feel my power slipping. <laughs> Clearly, the demons were shaking in their boots. They knew who they were up against. Be quiet, 
said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Jesus does not make much of these spirits. The demons are not given the stage to speak, and he is not looking for their testimony. He quite literally muzzles the demon. That's what the Greek means. He also does not use a formula. Jesus goes about it differently than anything else the crowd had seen or heard about. There are no rituals, incantations, noises, pharmaceutical recipes, knots, devices. He gives a word, a stern word. Jesus here was not preparing the way for the kingdom. He was not even necessarily giving the people a sign that the kingdom of God had come near. He was operating in kingdom authority. Verse 27. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly. They were amazed. And the word actually has overtones of fear and alarm. They don't really understand what's going on, but they want more of it. It's not that they had never seen a deliverance before. Both the Jewish and the pagan cultures surrounding were familiar with the spirit realm. And both had ways of trying to cope and deal with it. What they had not seen was someone do it so simply, so authoritatively, or seen the demons respond so submissively. This kind of authority was alarming. Are we the same? How do you hear this story? A little bit of fear, alarm, a little bit of curiosity. There are two dangers when it comes to talking about the supernatural. One, we completely ignore it, strive to explain everything scientifically, and in our Western culture, this is most often the case. The enemy goes about his plans unchecked because we prefer to look at evil as solely a human problem. We live defeated lives, blanketed in self-condemnation, never even looking to take hold of the authority that belongs to us who are in Christ. Or two, we make too much of it. We become obsessed with the spiritual and concentrate on the darkness. We see this in cultures that have built entire social constructs around superstition, ritual, and idol worship. And we would be foolish to think that these places that seem foreign to us are are playing make-believe games. They are absolutely contending with real evil, real deception, real darkness. We would also be foolish to think that the rational West is immune to this. People right now are spiritually hungry. There is a growing openness to spirituality in all forms. I think that right now we are caught between two worlds. We're playing in the sandbox of crystals and energy and angel worship, things that I know for a fact are being practiced quite casually in my kid's school and in my neighborhood. And at the same time, we pretend that the sandbox doesn't exist. But regardless of our cultural moment or our personal experience or belief about the demonic, as we read God's word, we know two things. 
Darkness is real, and Jesus has real authority over it. I've had the privilege of being a part of a number of deliverance journeys, and so I've seen the power of Jesus' name at work. It's not all strange and visceral and violent like it is here described for this man, but it is real. I have seen the name of Jesus confront and silence nightmares, curses, out-of-control behaviors, traumatic memories, suicidal thoughts, negative self-talk, and I've seen visible, tangible differences in the people who have been set free, myself included. This is only the beginning of a very large conversation with a lot of nuance. So if this is something that you want to explore, can I encourage you to dig deeper? We don't currently have a soul care group or class going on, but if you have not read the book, that is an excellent place to start. Or myself, any one of the pastors would welcome a conversation. Would love to journey with you on this. Jesus has authority over the spiritual. Let's take a breath. That's, that's heavy stuff. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Jesus has just established his dominion over the spiritual realm. His authority is no match for the loud, mouthy demons that were tormenting the man. And his very real power that came with just a word is now demonstrated with just a touch. It is gentle and deeply effective. Jesus is concerned about the physical, our humanity, and he's king over it as well. Jesus' authority extended very simply, very quietly, to every aspect of real life. And his kingdom continues to intersect with our lives now. We sometimes want the show. <laughs> we have to admit that we have a taste for the dramatic. But our needs are not always loud and dramatic like a raging demon in a crowd. Sometimes our needs are quiet and unassuming like a fever, hidden away in a bedroom, and the miracle happens just as quietly. Your kingdom come, your will be done, Jesus prayed, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. If we belong to Christ, we share in his authority. It is immediate and accessible and inclusive. I don't know about you, but for me, this gets problematic very quickly. Why isn't the kingdom coming for me? I've asked for healing, specifically for myself, for my mother-in-law, who passed away this spring. I prayed for it in Jesus' name, so where is he? Where was he? Where's his power? Why not now? Why not when I ask for it? These are likely the same questions that Mark's audience was asking, those he was writing the gospel account for years after Jesus had lived and died. 
They were under persecution and experiencing incredible suffering without supernatural relief. They too must have been wondering, had the miraculous ended with Jesus, with his ascension? Mark only gives us a single verse about Jesus' time in the wilderness, but Luke gives us a whole chapter, and we come to know that the devil's most compelling temptation was encouraging Jesus to use his miraculous power to avoid the way of suffering and the road to the cross. In Jesus' ministry and later in the ministry of the early church, we know that not all received healing. There's no indication that Jesus healed all or even a majority of the sick people in his day. There is a temptation to demand from God evidence of his power to avoid our own suffering. But that is not the way of Jesus. We're mistaken to think that in all of this, Jesus was operating in his godness, in his divinity. The Gospel of John reminds us that Jesus himself was operating under authority. In the book of John, I can do nothing on my own. I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. While on earth, Jesus laid down the rights and power of his own divinity and worked completely under the authority of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we only begin to see the outworking of his miraculous ministry after his baptism, after being anointed with the Spirit. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, however, this son of a carpenter, this no-name from Nazareth, was now beginning to heal and cast out demons. Surely he could have used his power to save himself from the cross, but he didn't. On this side of eternity, we will see sickness and death. We will still experience loss and heartbreak, but the kingdom of God has come near. We suffer with Jesus as we announce and demonstrate the good news according to the spirit who is at work in us. The spirit of God cannot be predicted or contained or commanded for our purposes. However, God can be trusted to care about our suffering, to meet us with a compassionate touch, and to provide for our truest, deepest needs, even when we don't know what those are. So what does Simon's mom-in-law do after the fever leaves her? She begins to wait on them. After being bedridden with a fever, I don't rightly imagine myself jumping up at the opportunity to host Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> but here we have this woman waiting on Jesus after he's healed her. And it might just be a natural consequence of her feeling better and resuming her normal duties and filling the expectations of her day. But isn't there something beautiful about the fact that the very first thing the woman does after being healed is serve Jesus? Could it have been an act of worship for her to wait on him? Here is good news. Jesus has authority over the spiritual. Jesus has authority over the physical. And he wants to use it. Perhaps this is our biggest barrier. 
even if we can wrap our minds around a God of miracles, that he is able, that he can do the impossible, that heaven truly can touch earth, do we believe that he wants to? Or do we believe that he's holding out on us? Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Mark does not shy away from hyperbole. All the sick and all the demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and the whole town gathered at the door of this tiny little house. We have a sense of the size of Capernaum, and I highly doubt that there were 1,500 people huddled around the door of Simon and Andrew's house. But the kingdom at work draws a crowd. The sick are drawn to hope. People are drawn to hope. They are looking for someone who will take away their pain, their broken hearts, their broken relationships, their sickness and their sadness. They are looking for a miracle. And aren't we all? Jesus has compassion on the crowd, full of people who have no clue who he is, why he has come. They come looking for results. But Jesus does not disparage them. He looks at them and loves them. He heals them anyway. It's in his nature. But Jesus also knows that his time has not yet come. His full true nature, his real reason for coming, is actually not to heal and drive out demons. Wait, what? I thought you just told us that Jesus heals and drives out demons. The book of Mark actually makes a big deal about Jesus trying to keep all of that a secret. Jesus came for the cross. And he came for the cross so that we could do even more than he did on this earth in his name. If you have not seen the healing or the freedom yet, you need to know that Jesus is not holding out on you. He is not punishing you. He is not demanding more from you. He is not holding your healing over your head until you prove yourself worthy. He has compassion. He sees you. And maybe the time hasn't come yet. And you still need to walk the road of suffering with him for a little while. But the will of God is always for the kingdom to come. Jesus said in Luke 12, It gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. God is eager for us to experience the power of his kingdom. There is tension here. Because our healing does not always come on this side of eternity. Until Jesus returns, there is still death, and we are still in a battle. But on the cross, Jesus won and proved his victory, which is the power of life over death. And when he returns, and when we enter that final Sabbath rest, the last thing, The kingdom will come in all its power and glory. And the fullness of life that God intends for all of us will be established forever. Amen. I'd like to read a quote from a book called Kingdom Come by Reggie McNeil. He says, Jesus' mission involved the invasion of another kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. 
This kingdom of darkness steals, maims, and destroys life. From its devastating entrance into our world through Eden, it has set up shop in every area of our lives to diminish God's intended design. The king of this dark kingdom offers a pale imitation of true life. But his kingdom is under siege. Jesus made it plain that he came to wreak havoc on the kingdom of darkness. We see him talk about it in Luke 11. For when a strong man like Satan is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe. Until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. To show the strong man who was stronger, Jesus came and engaged in a ministry of miracles. He met needs, he gave hope, he restored people physically, and he broke the chains of sin and spiritual bondage. As Jesus began his ministry that Sabbath day in the synagogue, he proved that in him, the kingdom is immediate, available, and accessible. And this morning, you might feel like you're leaving with more questions than answers. <laughs> That's okay. The mystery of God can sometimes unnerve us, make us feel unsettled, but maybe there's a holy discontent stirring in you, a desire to see the kingdom come in ways that you haven't experienced before. That is God's desire for you too. Fullness of life for everyone. So be comforted. Jesus has complete authority over both the physical and the spiritual. There is nothing outside of his reach, and there is nothing to fear when he is near. Jesus wants our healing and our freedom, so much so that he died for it. He is not holding out on us. He is driven by compassion and love. As we submit to him, we get to share in his authority and do even greater things. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.